The following program is proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. About half of the fatal crashes involved a driver or rider engaging in at least one of the identified unsafe road user behaviours of speeding, drink driving, drug driving, seatbelt non-usage or illegal mobile phone use. Think safe, drive safe, arrive safe. far on road safety in focus, we've addressed road rules, safety regulations and road accidents extensively and from very much a bricks and mortar perspective, rules, requirements and requisites, car and driver safety, etc, etc. We've also spoken to a broad range of professionals and road safety experts to walk us and talk us through crash trends and statistics, laws and regulations, rules for different types of road users and a host of different issues to caution drivers and other road users against behaviours which could see them paying hefty fines, losing demerit points and potentially facing a licence suspension or disqualification. And many people look at the loss of demerit points or the loss of a licence as one of the worst things that could befall them as either a driver or rider and it very well could be a huge inconvenience. But compare these kinds of losses with somebody losing their life, losing a limb or losing the ability to walk, talk or function normally for the rest of their life, and it's easy to see that not all tolls and penalties are paid in dollars. In fact, some of the heaviest tolls are paid with human life. And there are very few people who get to see the immediate, raw and confronting outcomes of the tolls paid with human life, however such scenes of destruction and devastation are not at all foreign to first responders, including the paramedics who attend these scenes to render medical assistance to crash victims before they've even had a chance to process what's happened to them. To tell us about the experience of being among the first on scene in the aftermath of a road accident and the types of trauma seen through the eyes of a first responder, I'm pleased to be speaking with New South Wales Ambulance Inspector Joe Ibrahim.
Inspector, it's great to have you on Road Safety in Focus. Thank you for having me, Ola. It's a pleasure. Now, Inspector, can we start off by just having you tell us a little bit about how long you've been in this field of work? Yeah, I've been a intensive care paramedic as well as a New South Wales ambulance inspector for just on 10 years now. So you do have quite a bit of experience under your belt. Certainly do. I go to these um, scenes, sadly, all too often. Inspector, can you please share with us, based on what you've observed in the line of duty, what are the different types of traumatic injuries sustained by people in road accidents? They range uh, quite dramatically from uh, simple uh, head strikes uh, and some burns perhaps from the airbag all the way to, as you said before, loss of limb and of course the worst being death. I can only imagine, I mean, how confronting these scenes must be for you. I mean, of course, you get a call out to these scenes. You have no idea what you're going to be confronted with when you arrive there and what state the victims are going to be in. So you've got to be prepared for anything and everything. Right. Um, Even when car accidents or motorcycle accidents or even push bike accidents, etc., come over the air as uh, quite low speed, etc. Sometimes you get there expecting that they won't be too injured, but find that there's people inside trapped in vehicles and unconscious from what would otherwise be considered a very, very minor accident. So what can you tell us then about the extent of injuries sustained by crash victims and the types of crashes or road accidents that lead to the most serious types of injuries? I think that the messaging is really, really clear about the types of accidents and that's being distracted, Mm. whether it be on your phone uh, or not paying attention, talking, etc., playing with the sound on your radio, uh, just looking away from the road. Mm. Uh, Also, of course, fatigue. You know, if you're not well rested and you start driving tired, uh, as well as uh, speeding and, of course, uh, any type of drug or alcohol use behind the wheel or the handlebars of a motorcycle. Um, fatigue in particular, I mean, there was an interesting statistic I came across last time saying that fatigue-related crashes are three times more likely to be fatal than a crash that doesn't involve fatigue. And uh, it was interesting to see that the reason behind that is because, well, people who are falling asleep behind the wheel cannot react. They can't break. That's exactly right. And we burden it closely to alcohol, for example. You know, uh, you can't break because you've fallen asleep. You've ventured across the other side of the road. You don't even uh, see a vehicle or a truck or something else coming towards you. Mm. Uh, And as such, you quite literally hit that at the full speed that the vehicle is going. And that makes things horrendous. So not just for you as well, you've got mm. to remember the other person that you can potentially hit. Yeah. I experienced not too long ago a young person mm. who'd had a micro sleep due to fatigue. This was around the sort of five or six o'clock in the morning thing, yeah. uh, ventured the other side of the road and unfortunately hit two cyclists. Oh. Both of those cyclists, one of which had their leg amputated immediately and flung metres and metres away from them and died on the road. The other one uh, we transported by helicopter after trying to stabilise to Westmead Hospital and unfortunately that person also died. So not only is it 
horrendous for you, it can be horrendous for others. And this young person who was driving, and he was a pea platter, oh. um, he will be scarred for life from that. And I don't know how he will sort of recover from that. Absolutely. And I think that's the kind of messaging that we're really trying to get out there to people that, you know, even if you happen to survive a car crash, it doesn't mean that you haven't affected other people with what you've done or what you've contributed to. If this car crash has resulted from you engaging in some sort of a behaviour, breaking the road rules, being distracted, whatever it is, um, it's not just about you, it's about everybody else who's on the road as well. You're 100% right. And each one of them, you have a family that you need to get home to and you need to be safe for. Likewise, the other road users have families that they need to get home to and they need to be safe for. So we all have that shared responsibility. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just so sad a lot of the times when you hear these stories about, you know, people who go out in the morning thinking they're going to come back home to their families in the afternoon and through no fault of their own, they're doing the right thing. They're abiding by the road rules. They're trying to be as safe as possible through somebody else's negligence. They don't end up returning home to their families, unfortunately. You're 100% correct. Inspector, does the type of traumatic injury sustained through a road accident vary amongst drivers, passengers, pedestrians and riders of different sorts, either bicycle or motorbike riders? And what are some of the more obvious differences in their injuries? Yeah, look, it certainly does. Car users are a little bit more protected. uh, But can I say, don't let that lead you into a false sense of security car users can certainly get really significant and severe injuries Mm. and lead to death or it leads to disabilities that would very much change your entire lifestyle as well as normal sort of living arrangements. Of course, though, pedestrians, bike riders, motorcycle riders are a little bit less protected Mm. because they're exposed to those elements. They don't have a metal cage that is surrounding them at the point of an impact So often pedestrians, bike riders and motorcycle riders have really horrendous, even if it's a minor car accident, Mm. have really, really horrendous injuries. They have gravel rashes, skin rashes. They need sometimes to have skin grafts, Mm. so parts of their skin removed from one part of the body and moved to the other part of the body. They get uh, often broken bones, generally lower. They get horrendous Mm. chest injuries forcing their lungs to collapse. These type of injuries are unfortunately too common and and things that we would like to see come to zero, quite frankly. Understandably. I mean, unfortunately, year after year, we hear about these kind of incidents. And um, I know we are talking about seeing these crash statistics declining and especially so over the last decade or so. But still, I think, you know, there's a long way that we need to travel before we get to that zero at the way we're going. Whilst we are seeing them declining and that is pleasing, I think that our target needs to be zero. One life lost on the road is too many. What have you observed in terms of the demographics of road crash victims? Are there any particular age groups or particular gender that you seem to attend to more than others? I know this is going to sound very stereotypical, but Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be younger people are often in a lot more road crashes than older people, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, males. Now, I can only put that down to risk-taking behaviour, to Mm. be honest. Younger people 
have more risk-taking behaviour. They mm. think that potentially they will be okay. And you know what? They might be okay, but the person they hit will not. Mm. The male gender, unfortunately, does take more risks. And that uh, risk-taking behaviour on our roads mm. uh, leads to some of the most horrendous, horrendous accidents I've ever come across. Definitely the inexperience comes into play with it. Uh, some of that peer pressure also plays into it. Some of those uh, risk-taking behaviours and trying to push their cars to their limit comes into play. So a whole range of factors is probably going to be contributing to that kind Absolutely. of pattern that you're seeing there. Now, Inspector, from a first responder perspective, have you noticed any particular road crash patterns? So for instance, are there any particular times or days of the week, month or year where serious road accidents appear to be more frequent? There's um, a combination of that. I could break that question up into two. Uh, Generally, you're sort of either early morning, late afternoon, we see a small peak in road accidents. Friday and Saturday nights, you also see a small peak in road accidents. However, the biggest time that we see a peak in road accidents is when it begins to rain. Interestingly, people don't alter their driving behaviours, whether it just be out of habit or whether it be out of negligence. People don't alter their driving behaviours to suit the environment in which they're driving. And as a result, we see a spike in road accidents. I definitely see it in wet weather conditions where people are not leaving enough of a safe distance, people throwing themselves in front of other vehicles, people braking too quickly and spinning out of control. I mean, there are horror stories unfolding before your eyes on some of those rainy days. Yeah, they certainly are. And they bring their own challenges because outside of the incident itself happening because the the driver hasn't changed their driving behavior to Mm. suit the environment for a first responder our response Mm. to that is extremely difficult because we can't travel as fast Uh, there are less likely abilities to be able to go around vehicles in you know Mm. for example flood water etc or damp or moist grounds where normally we could sort of go over a grass median strip and drive up the grass for example there's things that we can't do in wet weather and it slows our response time slightly uh, and sometimes that can make the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Now, based on uh, what is observed upon assessing a crash scene, are there any identifiable driver actions or car safety features that can be credited with preventing more serious injuries or tragic outcomes in the event of a crash? Look, 100%. Um, Seatbelts have been around now for years and years and years, and it is proven. If you wear them, you are significantly safer, significantly safer. Mm. I'm not saying that, you know, you're not going to sustain injury in a crash. You you very likely will, and hence Mm. we need to drive carefully and obey our rules. But if you don't wear a seatbelt, I'll give you an example. I went to a car who was travelling at quite high speed out the back of Penrith one afternoon uh, and they did not have a seatbelt on. Their car left the road, went into a, a telegraph pole. I found this person in the footwell of their vehicle. Mm. They were the driver and they were in the footwell of their vehicle and you could liken the person's legs as well as their pelvis, mm-hmm. their hip, to a pretzel. Oh. They were... Yeah, they were quite literally, there were that many breaks through their legs and through their pelvis that they were quite literally intertwined like spaghetti. Now, 
that might sound like, yeah, broken leg, that's okay, he'll be all right. It's not. A broken leg, and particularly a pelvis, pelvis is a life-threatening injury. It holds a third of your blood flow. And the broken legs and a pelvis means that you will be in rehabilitation for in excess of 6 to 12 months. Wow. Now, the other thing is airbags are lovely. They work extremely well. Are they a you know major necessity? No. Do they, however, increase your safety? Absolutely, they do. They stop you from getting really horrible head and chest injuries. But mm. this is something that comes with the vehicle and it's automatic. I think the most important thing to remember is to seatbelts. Yeah. I mean, despite these safety features built into cars that, you know, protect us in the event of a car crash, they don't make us bulletproof. I mean, we still need to exercise caution and common sense. Absolutely. They certainly don't make us bulletproof. We are human. We're made of, you know, skin, Mm. tissue, muscle, bone. And if you hit something at 100 kilometres an hour, regardless of every safety feature in the world, you will feel it. Inspector, how are paramedics or first responders able to deal with the confronting scenes they attend and how can they work through the chaos of a crash scene? So initially, paramedics are extremely well trained. They're trained over years and years and they're always partnered with an experienced mentor through that time. They have a systematic approach when they approach a crash scene and that approach ranges from triage, so they look and see who the most significantly injured is, how many people they have, they give a report and they get the right resources to them, like even whether that's more ambulance resources, whether that means police assistance, fire rescue, etc. if they're trapped in the vehicles. And then they begin to treat the most critically injured patient first. Mm. It's quite a task to be in a position where you're seeing all this carnage before you and having to put your emotions aside and to be very professional and to, you know, sit there and assess all these different risks and people's different injuries and with all your own emotions aside. That's 100% correct. And what makes it more difficult to put the emotions aside is to see the person's emotions, the Mm. other people's emotions, the one involved in the incident, Mm. but more the people that sometimes family arrive to the scene. If it's a prolonged incident, they're trapped in a vehicle, they're crushed in a vehicle, etc. And seeing their emotions is really difficult. It's really, really difficult because you liken them to you and they liken them to your family's emotions. And they're very, very in tune with their own emotions as well as others because that's what they do. They care for people. And to put that aside, that component is not negotiable. You must put your emotions aside. And you know what? To be honest, there are times where afterwards you do break down and there are times where you will have a cry in the back of an ambulance, you know, from some of the most horrendous things you'll ever see in your life. And that's okay because they're human too. Yeah, that's right. You know, I can't imagine having to work through that kind of chaos and, you know, having to just navigate your way around that kind of a thing while offering comfort to someone else, providing assistance to the best of your ability and not being able to even express any of these emotions, especially not in front of the victims or the patients who you're trying to help out, as bad as their situation may be. It's all got to catch up with you at some point. And I guess especially after you've attended a scene where the outcome has been less than desirable of somebody who has, you know, not made it, for example. 
You're 100%. I'll, I'll give you an example of the most horrendous road trauma I have gone to, and I won't go into the gory details because they are horrendous. Yeah. I attended a road traffic accident involving two cars. A 16-year-old girl had died. Her sister had also died. Her unborn, now-born twins had also died. Uh, and then her husband and the, the person in the other vehicle were quite seriously injured. In fact, her husband was critical uh, at the time. The sight of those children was something that was extremely, extremely difficult for me because they had been delivered, I suppose you could say, mm. uh, due to the impact of the of the crash, wow. which was absolutely horrible. And they were all, of course, deceased and there was nothing that we could do for them. But you moved on immediately to the critically unwell husband because he was... He was, you know, dying. He had significant head injuries. Mm. So he did what you could there. And thankfully he survived. And the other person in the other vehicle mm. uh, had, you know, significant leg injuries, multiple of, and uh, he also survived. But that took me almost 12 months yeah. to recover from. And that's psychological support. It didn't take any time away from work, thankfully. Yeah. So I still managed to go mm. to work. But some of these incidences are career-enders for paramedics, thankfully not for me yet. Yeah. But this took 12 months of, you know, psychological support, family support, and, you know, learning means and ways to deal with it and processing what we had just mm. gone through. Well, there's a lot that's riding on your actions and your decisions in that kind of a situation. I mean, a life is hanging in the balance and the outcome of what happens to them is heavily relying on what you do or don't do in that kind of a situation. And the pressure of that situation alone, in addition to all the other emotions that you're experiencing as you witnessing all this trauma in front of you has got to be something that I honestly don't know how you guys do it. You're 100% right. This, this is twofold. Mm. There are, you know, calling a child deceased without actually working on them because you know that the resuscitation effort is futile mm. uh, is one of the most difficult decisions somebody will ever have to make in their career. Then moving immediately on from that to making critical clinical decisions mm. that is going to hopefully better the outcome of a critical patient on top of the you know emotional toll that you're seeing because of what you have just witnessed yeah. is extremely difficult. But you're right, you do learn to deal with it. You do get lots of support from the organisation and from your peers and colleagues uh, and from your family. And uh, I think, importantly, you understand that these paramedics have joined the job that they're doing for a reason mm. and that they are all extremely special individuals. And I guess in a way you're also among the first people. I know um, trauma doctors in the hospitals and the ED personnel, they all have a very crucial role to play also in, in taking over the care for these patients once you've worked on them and stabilised them and brought them into the hospital. But you are the first person basically that they see after that car crash. And the way that you respond and the way that you handle that situation is obviously going to be crucial to the outcomes of their situation. What is it like when somebody's just been in a car crash, they've got other people in the car with them, they're asking you, are they okay? Is everybody okay? How do you deal with that situation when you need to take care of this person 
but at the same time, they're more concerned about what's happened to the other people in their car. I think that's a really lovely attribute, first of all, from that particular individual, because yeah. they're injured themselves and they're more concerned about others. So that attribute from them is a really beautiful one. But that question is one of the most difficult questions to answer, especially if somebody has not made it or if multiple people have not made it through the accident and have sadly died. I'm generally very honest with that person and Mm. say, look, there are some people who are very, very injured. There Mm. are some people who have not made it. But my focus Mm. at the moment is on you and I'm treating you. The others have other paramedics with them who are treating them. And then I go straight into their clinical care. But that moment to answer that question is exceptionally difficult. And I know... You know, I waited, I waited to the same difficulty as breaking the news to a mother that their child had just passed. Uh, Equally, I I waited to the same difficulty as breaking the news to a wife or husband that had been married for over 50 years that their partner had just passed. These are difficult conversations, but need to be had. You're the bearer of bad news, really, and that's never an easy job to have, especially when it's of that nature where you're telling somebody that, you know, this person has passed away, they're never going to see them again, they're never going to hold them again. And you've got to be very quick on your feet as well. I mean, you've got to be thinking of how you're going to approach this issue, in what ways, what's the wording that you're going to use, how are you going to make sure that it doesn't cause bigger issues for you on scene? Because if you imagine having family members standing there on the side of the road after a car crash and you come and tell them that their loved one has passed, this is going to turn into a distressing scene. Yep, and often it does turn into a distressing scene. What we need to understand is every different culture manages Mm. this type of grief differently and we just adapt to their particular culture and the way that they manage grief and the way that they mourn. Uh, And we let them do that, and that's okay. But I tell you, it's distressing to watch and emotionally challenging uh, for both them and us. So I suppose the message is super clear. Just be careful in our roads. Obey our road rules. Don't uh, drink and drive. Don't drive if you are tired. Mm. And don't be overconfident, uh, especially if you have a lack of experience. Absolutely. And I don't think those messages can be repeated enough times, to be honest with you. No, I agree. We still are far from the number that we need, and that number is truly zero. I guess in some ways you've already delivered a message, but in particular for those who deliberately flout the road rules or act in defiance of these road safety messages. From the experiences and perspectives of a first responder, what are your words of advice or words of caution? Rather, My words of caution to those people are, you do not want to meet me, you do not want to meet any of my team members in a situation that has resulted because of your negligence. And that situation is often dire, and I know that sometimes you brush these risks off, but let me tell you, those risks, when they come to fruition, are life-changing for you. And the last thing you want is for me to be putting you to sleep or for me to be putting needles into your chest or for one of our doctors to be cutting your chest open because you've got significant injuries or putting you to sleep, as I said before, because your pain is so bad that you cannot tolerate it. Drive safely and don't flaunt the rules. 
And definitely you don't want to be the person that kills somebody else or maims somebody else for the rest of their life. You don't want to be that person that's responsible for right. another person never being able to walk again. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. New South Wales Ambulance Inspector Joe Ibrahim, thank you for taking the time to give us some deep insight into the confronting experiences of first responders and the road-related trauma they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Keep up the great work and keep making a difference. Thank you, Alice. It's been my pleasure. About half of the fatal crashes involved a driver or rider engaging in at least one of the identified unsafe road user behaviors of speeding, drink driving, drug driving, seatbelt non-usage or illegal mobile phone use. Think safe, drive safe, arrive safe.